Uh, talk last night was on humility as we were thinking about that and thinking about if we're going to be a leader and we're going to do what God's called us to do, then we need to know who we are. And we find out who we are by looking at who God is and what he has done. And we look at Jesus Christ, who is the model and motivation for all that we do. So we talked last night about Jesus lays the tracks of how we should live by his very own life, showing us what humility looks like. And then he fuels us to do that very life by giving us the motivation to serve him through the gospel and the power of the spirit. And so humility is of the utmost importance. What we're going to talk about this afternoon is making sure that we're bringing people with us and discipling and drawing people to being a good leader. And leader needs to bring people, not just take care of ourselves. But what we'll talk about now and this time that we have is making sure we remember where we're going <coughs> and our life being orientated around that reality. Um, so to get started, I want to just remind you of a character in the Bible and tell you his story a little bit. We're not going to turn to the passage and go through because it's several chapters in the Bible, but just summarize some key points. Um, if you're newer to the Bible, you might not be familiar with this guy. If you are, I trust that his story is one that reminds you of the importance of not falling asleep and being drawn after this world. The person I'm thinking about is Lot. You know, Lot is Abraham's, or was Abraham's nephew. And so he, Abraham received the promise that he's going to be the father of many nations, and that many nations would be blessed from him, and God gives him these great promises. Even at an old age, he's going to have a son, and through this son, the blessing to the nations will come. And it's amazing. And Lot gets wrapped up in this because he's Abraham's nephew, and he goes with them, travels with them, and... What ends up happening about chapter 13, since God has promised Abraham that he's going to get everything, he's going to get all this land, everything is happening where they're getting blessed and they're growing, and the, the family's growing, the servants are growing, the livestock is growing, God is blessing them um, in, a, in a very physical, tangible way. And Lot and Abraham's workers were like, they were having conflict. So Abraham said, hey, listen, we need to split. We need to go different ways, otherwise this isn't going to be good. And since God has promised us all this area, it's going to work out. So you want to go east, I'll go west. If you want to go west, I'll go east. And so he gives, he defers to Lot. Lot gets first pick, and he picks east, and he goes, and he takes the land. And we find him in the next chapter, in chapter 14. Actually, there's like this battle of all these kings happening. And Lot gets taken captive by the kings of Sodom and some of the other kings. And Abraham, being like almost 80 years old at this point, grabs 300 of his guys and goes after him like a midnight search and rescue mission, goes and gets him, which is amazing. I mean, you can, I, don't, I don't know if there's anybody in the room that's 75 years old, but I, I don't, if you do, you look pretty good, maybe. Uh, but I think of my dad, 73, and you know, he's not getting like leading SEAL Team 6 to go get somebody in the middle of the night. Uh, but Abraham did, and he led those guys, and they got Lot and his family and all the stuff and bring them out. And so Lot sees his rescue and his family. But then, of course, we, we find Lot just continuing to just seem lethargic, kind of lazy, and not really having a spiritual pulse. He's, he's a believer in the sense of Peter calls him righteous Lot. He says that he was repulsed by the deeds in Sodom, and he's got some proper repulsion of the society around him, but yet he's comfortable there at the same time. And we find him in chapter 19 sitting in the gate of Sodom. He's just like, he's there 
living in Sodom. He's like, he's moved progressively to Sodom. And the angels of the Lord are coming to destroy Sodom. They're going to take it down because of the wickedness. And Abraham is praying for Lot and for the city. And God is gracious and he warns Lot beforehand. And Lot is hearing the angels and he actually tells his sons-in-laws, the ones who are betrothed to his daughters, he tells his wife, he tells his daughters, well, listen, the angels are going to destroy the city. We need to go. And they thought he was joking. So he just thought like, well, I don't want to be mocked. And they all go to sleep. They go to sleep at night. And then in the morning, the angels wake him up bright and early. Get up, this angelic alarm clock. Get out. The Lord's going to destroy the city. You need to go. And Lot gets everybody. They, they make their way out. But it actually says in the Bible that the angels had to grab a hold of them and pull them out. They're just so lethargic and so comfortable in Sodom. They pull them out, and as they're going, we find out that the sons-in-laws don't actually come. They stay behind. And then Lot's wife, famously um, memorialized by Jesus, remember Lot's wife, looks back. She's Her feet are fleeing for salvation, but her heart is in Sodom, and she looks back even after being told not to look back. She turns into a pillar of salt. And so Lot loses his wife, loses these potential sons-in-laws, and then he takes his daughters, and they go, and they hide in a cave. And the horrible story of his daughters getting him drunk and he's so drunk he doesn't even know what's going on and they basically have sex with him to have children and so while they're out of sodom sodom's not out of them sodom's reborn and i just think about this and i say man what what a life this guy had and, and the bible gives us these examples not just to say wow man, what, what a messed up life but what an example that is to us to look at and what would we learn from something like that? Well, I think there's a lot of things, but one thing, particularly why I'm using this as an illustration to, to get our thoughts tonight, this guy had tremendous privilege being part of the family of the promise. And he saw great things, great works of God. He saw Melchizedek come and bless Abraham. And he saw Abraham, this old man, rescue him from the kings of the earth. He saw angelic visitors come and warn him to go. He saw the fire and the judgment happen. He saw his wife even. But what was his impact? Like we hear nothing else about Lot in the Bible other than to reference this scene in this time. I mean, from what we know, he did little in Sodom for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God. He certainly didn't do much for his family. And his daughters had to be pried out of there with the jaws of life to go. His wife turns into a pillar of salt. He loses the rest of them. Little impact on Sodom. Little impact on his family. Little impact on his own soul, for all we know. He seems like he's kind of calloused and weak. And I just look at this and I say, hey, remember Lot's wife, but brothers, let's remember Lot, too. Let's remember this guy that had this tremendous privilege and say, you know what? I, I don't want to live like that. Because we live in a world that's, I mean, at the end of the day, this is, this is going to be destroyed, this world. God is going to come back and he's going to judge. And, and I guess just a question, like, what's the impact we're leaving in our communities, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, uh, our families, our children, extended family, our churches? Like, those types of thoughts we want to be thinking about, not to get so comfortable that we're just reclining in the gates of Sodom like it's no big deal. We should be jogged by the reality of the kingdom of God and the coming judgment and the wickedness that's in the world. And so I think about today in this, this talk, what we want to think about is remember where you're going. Remember where you're going. I think it's really helpful to not dig roots into this world by remembering where you're actually going. Remember the kingdom you're part of. And to do that, I want to go to... 
Um, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians in the New Testament. We'll just stay in Colossians 3. I think we'll stay there the whole time today and think through this passage. And what's interesting about Colossians um, 3 is it's a pivot point. You'll notice it's kind of a therefore an if statement pivoting in chapter 3 back from chapter 2. And without going through the, the whole book of Colossians, there's something going on in Colossae and in that region at that time where people are really into this physical, earthly world and everything that they can do, um, whether by depriving themselves of things, asceticism, or by keeping certain feasts and festivals and different things. And we read about that in chapter 2. And in the end, it says in verse 24, I believe, verse 23 of chapter 2, these things have an, indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they're no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So these things look religious and they don't actually do anything. But in, a, in contrast to all of these things, these earthly things, you have Christ. And the argument in Colossians is simply this. Jesus Christ is sufficient because he's supreme. Jesus Christ is sufficient because he's supreme. And so therefore, since we have Jesus and we're connected to him, we're not attached to all these earthly things. These things are not going to bring us to heaven. They're not going to bring identity and meaning and purpose. They, they could be useful for certain aspects of life, of course. But really, our, key, our, our, our calibration is to the kingdom of God and to Jesus Christ. And so that's what ends up happening in chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is is pivoting out of chapters 1 and 2. And he's saying, now listen, we got to do something about this. And so I want to just simply, we'll read as we go. Um, we'll break it into verses 1 through 4, and then uh, 5, <coughs> excuse me, through 14, and 15 through 18. And, and here's what kind of the main point for this morning is this. If you're going to lead others, you need to remember where you're going. If you're going to lead others, you need to remember where you're going. I mean, this, it, we're, we're dads, we've or husbands, or at least we've probably driven other people around in a car before. And there's nothing worse than being the driver that doesn't know where he's going. And you know, you're just going, and and they're like, "Do you know how to get there?" Like, I actually have no idea where I'm going. Right? That, that's not a comfortable position to be in. Um, so we want to want to actually know where we're going. In, in what we're doing. So that's, if we're going to be leaders, we want to do that. So the first is to, in verses 1 through 4, calibrate your compass. And then verses 5 through 14, change your clothes. And 15 through 18, tune your heart. So let's look first at this calibrating your compass in verses 1 through 4. We'll just walk through this. Uh, is really is foundational. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, uh, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So this is a, this is a call to calibrate your compass, to, to have it synced up uh, with the reality of of what is what is true, what is reality. I, for years, I um, I worked in the Air Force um, as an intelligence analyst, and like one of the the main things that we did 
was we provided these um, calibration models for the pilots as they were flying. So they basically, if you're flying from point A <coughs> to point um, D, then there's these spots along the route where they had to calibrate their system to make sure everything was, was tight. So they're going to get where they need to go according to the uh, coordinates that are provided and dropping the bombs that need to happen. And so that was our job was to, to provide particular fixed spots that would then calibrate uh, the system. That was one of the things that we did. And so this, this thought of calibration, in my mind, is, is really prominent in, in thinking. And I think with the Bible and the New Testament particularly, it helps me to, to think about the reality of my compass needs to be actually calibrated with reality of what's going on. And that's what Paul's doing in verses 1 through 4. He's saying, listen, if, if you've actually become a Christian, then you need to calibrate your entire life with the reality of the fact that you are part of the kingdom of God. And so this is what he's, what he's saying. He's, he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, if, if this is the fact, if you've been raised with Christ. Now, what, what does he mean by raised with Christ? Because you're, you're walking about this, this earth, and what does it mean? Christ is raised, and he was obviously dead. You haven't died, been raised. He's in heaven. You're on earth. So what's, what's going on? What he's speaking of, I think it's a lot like Romans chapter 6. If we've died with Christ, we're united to him in his death. And if we've been united to him in his death, like 1 Corinthians 15, we are united to him in his resurrection. So just like Christ died, we die with him spiritually. And where he goes, we will go. And so we're living in this, this intermediate time right now between the resurrection and ascension and the return. And what, what Paul is saying here is, if you've actually been raised with Christ, it's shorthand for saying if, you've been a, if you are a Christian, if you're united to Christ by faith, you've died with him, and just as he raised and he has gone to heaven, you too are actually going there. In fact, spiritually, you've got one foot, actually two feet in heaven right now, spiritually, because you're connected to Jesus. And where he is, you will go. So what Paul is saying is that this reality that you are a Christian and you're connected with Christ has massive implications on your life. So if you've been raised, so brothers, if you're a Christian, if you've been raised with Christ, you've got something you need to do. Look at verse 1. He says, seek. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Uh, this this seeking is the is the same word that you... See, where it's like, seek first the kingdom of God. You see that in Matthew 6. Or to, to, to seek and to pursue after that which you want to find. But the, the, the idea here is not so much that you are seeking something so that you may get it, like pursue it so that you may get it. <clears throat> but actually, um, since you are united to Christ, since you have it, keep pursuing those things. And notice it's seek, and in, in our English, it might in our English Bibles, you might see it and think it's seek as in a sense like a one-time thing. Seek, this is what you need to do. Actually, in the Greek New Testament, it's just an ongoing action. So we might be able to say it like this. If you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Don't stop seeking the things above. That is this... This, this heart desire of you is to be on the things that are above. So your heart is calibrated by, by heaven, by Christ. 
and you're you're not drawn to the earthly things, the things that are going to perish, but you're you're ultimately drawn and you value and your identity is in Christ and the things of heaven. You're not like Lot, comfortable with the feet up in Sodom. But you are, you're like the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, who is his spirit was greatly disturbed because the city was full of idols. Just restlessly living in a world that is opposed to God. So keep seeking the things that are above. So he's lifting our chins to, to above. So this whole context in Colossae is it's all about this world. And Paul's like, look, there's actually a world to come that's better than this world. So seek the things that are above. So if you're going to lead people as a Christian, your, your roots cannot be in this world primarily. Your heart's desire should be the things that are above, connected with Christ in his glory. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the things of this world. You know, there's great blessings in the world. I don't think this is calling us to aestheticism and a complete retreat and withdrawal and separatism from the entire world, because that's actually what he's, he's going after in chapter 2 and saying that's actually not the way. But it's to live in the midst of this world in such a way that your compass, your orientation is on Christ and his glory. And that every single thing you do, you do for the glory of God. If this is something, if you're saying, should I do this or should I not do this? Should I love this? Should I not love this? The question is, does it bring glory to Jesus? Would I do this if Jesus were sitting right next to me? Would I be looking at the screen? Would I be thinking these thoughts? Would I be saying these words? Would I be reacting in this way? Would I be meditating on this? Would I be listening to this music? Would I be entertaining these thoughts? Whatever. If Jesus were right here. Because he is. He sees everything. And he knows everything. So as Christians aware of the glory of God, our hearts are drawn after not the value system of this world, but the value system of the kingdom. And he reminds us, the things that are above, notice where Christ is. That's where Jesus is. So if our hearts are connected to Christ and we've been raised with Christ and we understand that he's the one who's walked down the steps of humility to bring us out of our sin and our death and our misery, and then he's ascended back to glory and that's where he is, then that's where our hearts are. They're tied to Christ. See that the right hand of God is this position of authority and victory we got to keep going. He doesn't stop there. He says, your heart is to be pursuing these things. Keep seeking the things that are above. And then verse 2, kind of a parallel to it, set your mind on things that are above. A slightly different nuance, but now we're in, in the mind. Not, we're, not that we're um, saying they're mutually exclusive, the heart and the mind. But this is, they're both connected. It's, we pursue the things that we value. We love and desire the things that we find valuable in our mind. So here Paul is, is coming and he's got the whole being surrounded, both your heart, your desires, and then also your mind, what you think about. Keep setting your mind on things that are above. That's what we're, we're, to, we're to be doing. We have our minds focused on these things. And so this isn't a passive exercise where we just wake up in the morning and just hope at some point that maybe magically our minds are going to be calibrated to heaven and heavenly values. This is actually a command. There's lots of things in the Bible where we're reminded that God does them for us because we never would and never could do them. But this is actually something that we as Christian men, because we have the Holy Spirit, actually are called to do. To actively set your mind on things that are above. 
So it's not setting our minds on things that are on earth. So we can just active, uh, passively let ourselves just kind of draw in like whatever comes across the, the feed, the screen, the email, the conversation, whatever next YouTube video comes up, whatever next text message comes in, whatever next person calls you, whatever, whatever the day brings. And we're just, we're just kind of being programmed to respond instead of actively saying no. I am a Christian and I'm going to set my mind on things that are above. Even if I'm having to think about earthly things, which is fine. I have a job. I have family. I have bills to pay. I, I have medical things i got to navigate. I have relational dynamics that have to be worked out. I'm going to do so in a way that is intersecting with and, and exalting in the glory of God. So everything I want to do is about the glory of God. Setting your mind on things above, and then Paul says, not on things that are on the earth. Lifting it up to the heavenly realm. And then he gives a couple of reasons, right? So this is the, the calibration. Be calibrated by the things of God. He says, for you have died. So you've been raised. And now he's reminding you, you've died in this union with Christ. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And it's this beautiful kind of, it's like you're tucked in an envelope with Christ. Your, your life is hidden it's, it's the same word that's used earlier in Colossians, talking about uh, the mystery of Christ. It's this hidden reality that was hidden before. And now we're kind of wrapped into Christ in this way that to the, the average person, they don't see it. They look at you, you're just another man walking around, doing a job, living in the community. But the reality is you are hidden in Christ. Your life is actually in Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, when he returns... Then you'll be with him, and everybody will see, this guy was actually with Jesus. Look at this. This guy wasn't a fool. He wasn't intellectually weak. He wasn't, from a character standpoint, weak and one to be pitied. He actually had it. He had it right. You'll be with him in glory. And so just the, the first thought is to calibrate your compass, to live with your your compass of your mind and your heart calibrated to heaven, that you actively set your mind upon and seek with all of your heart the things that are above. And that's something that nobody can do for you. You need to actively do it. And if you're going to be an effective Christian leader, if you're going to be a value to your church, if you're going to be a godly single man or a godly husband or a godly dad or a godly grandfather, godly employee, it's, you, you're only going to do it insofar as that you're doing what the Bible says. And if you flip these verses inside out, and you say, uh, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are below. Set your minds on things that are below. That's not what we're called to do. And that's why we end up leaving a legacy like Lot. Because we're not actively doing what we're called to do. So it's, the, the passage isn't just isolated like law, 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 do this. There's the back wind of the gospel pushing forward right through us. It's like, listen, you've been raised with Jesus. You've died with Christ. You're united with him. Now, what difference does it make in your life? So live like it. Okay, so calibrate your compass. But that's not the end of the passage. Actually, in verses 5 through 14, you have this word picture of changing clothes. So that's the second point, change your clothes. And what ends up happening in verses 5 through 14 is a, uh, a, a word picture that's talking about like putting off 
and putting on. And it's it's helpful to think of it as, as putting off dirty clothes and putting on clean clothes. So if you were working uh, in a field or you're working cement or drywall or doing any type of work where your clothes get soiled and then you come home from work, you don't just walk right in and with the filthy paint clothes or drywall clothes or muddy clothes and just walk in and just sit right on the couch, throw your feet up on the hassock or the ottoman in front of you and just be like, oh man, can't wait to eat, right? Um, you, that's a mess and that's not how we live. We would change our clothes, remove the, the dirty clothes and put on the clean clothes. And so what the Apostle Paul is using with this, this word picture is the the, the, the soiled clothes, the dirty clothes, are the, the, the vices of this world, the sins of this world. And they are the uh, tendencies of our hearts as fallen men because we have indwelling sin. And so we, we sin. So what Paul is saying is put off or put to death or kill these things that are consistent with this earthly kingdom. And then put on the clean clothes, the virtues of those things which are consistent with the kingdom of God. And so it's this ongoing call of putting things off and putting things on, removing and putting in place. And so I don't know, many of you guys are familiar with the, the term, it's an old term, mortification. Heard that word? So John Owen uses that phrase in, in, in chapter 6 of his works, mortification of sin. Uh, if it's a newer word, you might think of like the, the word a mortician. Right? A mortician is one who deals with death and prepares us for burial. Uh, so it's all wrapped up in, in that concept of death. And so mortification is putting to death sin. But there's another side to it. It's vivification, which comes where we have life. And it's putting on life. So there's two sides of it. We don't just kill sin. We actually have to put on the replacement. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's showing us, hey, this is what, what we need to do as Christians, is we need to put things to death and we need to put things on. And you look at this and say, well, why do I need to do this? Because if you're going to live in such a way that you affect the people around you and live as a Christian, you need to know where you're going. You need to live like you're going there, doing some spiritual good to those around you. It's just a call to maturity. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's walk through this and see what he says in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put, put to death. It, it's, it's kill. right? It's put it to death, what is earthly in you. And so now he's, he's showing us we're seeking the things above. So one of the ways that we seek the things above is to put this sin to death. And then he lists some things. These were things that he was listing probably for because he knows people in the area, he knows Epaphras, he knows as a pastor, he's talked with him, he knows the things that the church would struggle with, and he knows the things that would be common to, to people at that time. So this isn't a uh, comprehensive list, but this is the types of things that he says that, that need to be put, up, put out. And, and, you know, incidentally, they're probably things that, that we all struggle with as well. So it's nothing new under the sun. He says to put these things to death, and he, he lists them as sexual immorality, Right? This is just a, a, a broad term encompassing all kinds of immorality. He says, put it to death. Kill it. Impurity. Anything that's, that's impure or unclean. Right? You kill that sin. Uh, think of the ritual of the Old Testament. Things that are clean and unclean. That which is 
not pleasing to God. Anything that's impure, get rid of it. Uh, passion is this, uh, in a negative sense here, this, this passion that would be selfish passion or evil desire. So desire for evil, that which would not please God, and then covetousness or greed, as it says in other translations, selfishness, which is idolatry. So he's, he's saying to put these things to death. And then he lists all these other vices down in verse 8. He, he put them all away in anger and wrath and malice. So this anger is kind of this like simmering, smoldering frustration. Wrath is the quick burning reaction that we'd have, which is basically social media, right? <laughs> and cable news, like these quick um, flare-ups. This malice, this this hatred, slander, it's, it's this spoken tr untruths about people attacking their character. Obscene talk, that's just speaking in a way that does not honor the Lord, saying jokes or crude things or things that are just not pleasing to God. He said, put them all away. Get rid of them all. And he gives us some, some motivations in the midst of that, verses 6 and 7. He says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And now, now I feel a little bit like Lot in Sodom, with the angels coming and saying, get out of it. He's like, put these things to death because God's wrath is coming. And what's interesting is this, um, dealing, dealing with sin. I, I do think that sometimes as Christian men, we're not living primarily for sanctification, but we're, we're kind of living for like this comfort of not being too disturbed. And so if we can maybe say it this way, domesticate our sin or perceive that we can domesticate it, that we can kind of like keep our sin in check and nobody really is going to think we're crazy and we can still kind of indulge from the sin and keep our lives pure outwardly and we're not too bad. We kind of we kind of just kind of keep the, the car going down the road enough. We may swerve a little bit out of the lane, but we're on the road, man. We're not crashed in the ditch. And we're fine. I think that's a that's really deceptiveness of our heart. And I think it will be the evidence of spiritual warfare. It reminds me of a story. Years ago, there was this guy in a neighborhood that um, always had this, it's strange, right? He had this python around his neck. And he would uh, walk around with the, the python. And, you know, just, you know, comments about the guy in general aside, he had this python and he liked to like show up at the park. And as you can imagine... People notice him, right? So he's got the python, and he would show the kids, and he'd let them pet the python, and we would never pet the python. But you'd see the python guy with the thing, and he's walking around and drawing a crowd and loved the attention. And it was always amazing. Like, this guy had the snake, and he he was powerful enough to, like, control the snake. He, I mean, the snake was domesticated. He took care of it. But you know what happened one day? Out of nowhere, out of no warning, that snake turned tightened and killed them in front of people in the moment the pet became his killer he thought he could domesticate the snake he was wrong and so it is with sin we think we can domesticate sin that we can just kind of keep it comfortable in, in a way that's just kind of like socially acceptable we kind of keep moving and everything's fine, but you don't realize that which you think you can domesticate can suddenly turn into your killer and destroy your life. 
Now, as pastors, those in the room that are pastors, you know that we like we sit in the triage scene when the guy has blown up his life, or the wife has blown up her life, and you're looking at him, and it's always the same reaction: the head in the hands, the eyes are teary. What the heck did I do? And they thought they could domesticate it. Oh, it's just a few texts to this girl. It's just a little bit of pornography. It's just a couple of extra drinks. It's just a little bit of shady business work. And before you know it, the whole thing falls apart. And so this is just a reminder, brothers, put to death. You're not just trying to put it in your pocket so nobody sees it, or put it in your backpack so nobody sees it. Put it to death. So is there, is there sin that you're coddling, trying to domesticate, that you're keeping under wraps? You think this thing is your pet? This is the stuff that kills you. And even more. Look what it says. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living them, but you must now put them all away. And it's, he's reminding you, like, that's part of the old life. That's who you used to be. But you're not like that anymore. Why? Because Christ has come. And he's died for our sins. He's been raised again. I sometimes think about sin in this way and, and just think, like, how, how could I tolerate it even for one day? I just I want to hate sin, not just hate the consequences of sin, that sin messes up my life and those around me, and it makes things difficult. I, I should hate sin because of those things, but I should hate sin because sin is sinful. And it's sin that killed Jesus. Imagine if you in a situation where you're in your in your yard or you're at the house of a friend or a brother and let's just say a horrible situation all right let's take you out of the story right, this is a not thought through illustration hold on okay let's say an individual um their brother was murdered and they go out to the to the yard and the police take care of everything they find the guy the guy's buried, the brother's buried. And then three months later, you go out to that same area, you're cleaning up the yard, doing different things, and there over to the side, behind a couple of rocks underneath, you find the murder weapon. You find the knife, and it's still stained with his blood. And you look at it and you think, wow, look at this knife. I mean, it was really unfortunate that this was used to kill my brother, but this is a really nice knife. And I could use a knife like this because I fish or I hunt or I do whatever. This would be useful to me. Let me just clean the blood up on it and I'll put it over here and I can use it when I want to. In fact, I can wear it on my belt. I don't think any brother would think that way about the knife. They would look at that knife and they would say, this thing killed my brother. But get this thing out of here. Call the police. Take it away. I want nothing to do with this. And so it is with sin. This thing killed my savior how can i take the sin and just say well it's okay i mean it's kind of useful it makes me feel bad i've got a stressful life let me just take this in a little bit this is fine it's not really a big deal i'm under grace get this away and i think that's paul's thinking not just hating sin because of the disastrous consequences but hating sin because sin killed christ 
And sin is provoking the wrath of God, and God is coming back to judge sin and sinners. So, brothers, put it to death. Hate it. Be calibrated by the world above. Change your clothes. Get rid of it. That's what he's saying. Put on the new self, he says. That's the other side, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So you're being reshaped into this image of God. And, and he, he reminds us that in this new family, this new creation, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in and all. It doesn't mean that, that gender distinctions or, or even ethnic or geographic distinctions don't exist. Of course they do, but it means that they don't matter. They don't count. We are one in Christ. We salute the high flag of the gospel, and we are all one in him. And we're part of this new creation family, so rejoice in that truth and do something about it. He says, then put on. So you put sin to death, whatever that sin is, or those sins are, put them to death, kill them. But then put on, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so he's, he's saying to, to put on these virtues. So it's not just looking at it and saying, okay, I need to, I need to put, together, put to death um, sexual immorality. And say, well, why am I... You look at this and say, "Why? what do I do? I put that to death. Okay, so maybe that means screens, and maybe it's heart desire, maybe it's my time. So I'm putting it to death, I'm killing that, I'm slaying this sin, by savoring Christ, and I'm replacing it over here with something else. So what is the replacement for this, this love, this perverted love? It's a love for Jesus. It's a love for His glory, and a desire for His honor. And so it's it's a removal of one and a replacement of other. If it's anger, then it's replaced with this kindness. If it's pride and covetedness, then it's humility. If it's wrath and outburst, then it's meekness and self-control and patience. So it's just don't just stop being a jerk. Stop being humble and gracious, right? It's like, stop doing one, but put on the other. And what's the cause behind the whole thing? Christ. Do you notice how many times he layers in motivations? <clears throat> Verse 12, look at I'm just going to put for emphasis sake. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, right? And then he says, um, as the Lord, verse 13, has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So he, he just continues to dip his pen back in the ink of the gospel and say, oh, you know why you need to do this? Because you're God's chosen people. Why did he choose you? Because he loves you. Why do he love you? You're so awesome? No, because he loves you. You're holy. What, what does it mean you're holy? You're, you're a set-apart people. He sets you apart, not because you're intrinsically holy, but because you're practically holy and positionally holy. He moves you into, into union with Christ. And beloved, those who are loved by God. So all these motivations come fl flying out for us to deal with it. So just think of your life, putting sin to death and putting on the virtues of Christ. And then for sake of time, let's just move on to the, the next point, tuning your heart. 
verses 15 through 18, no, 15 through 17, it should say. 15 through 17 um, are three kind of quick commands at the end. It's interesting, each one ends with a call to thanksgiving. You notice in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your house to which you were called in one body and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this is a tuning of the hearts to praise God. And why would we be thankful? We'd be thankful because Christ has died for our sins that we're actually part of this new creation, that we know this one, Jesus Christ, as our Savior and Lord. And so these, these commands are anchored to the, the dark of the gospel. So see verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Uh, likely the, the peace that comes from Christ in the gospel, and then the peace that comes to you as a result of that. So this this, this objective peace you have through Jesus and the gospel. Let it rule in your hearts. It's, it's actually the word where we would get the word umpire. So we think referee, umpire, somebody who calls the balls and strikes or the fair or the foul or the inbounds, out of bounds, or the touchdowns or the not touchdowns. It's, it's, it's Jesus calling the balls and strikes in your life. So he's saying, let the peace of Christ, the truth of the gospel, Rule in your hearts. Let that be which governs your life. So if you're going to be a man who leads other people, you need to have Christ ruling your hearts. You know what that means? You don't rule your heart. The beginning of the chapter, keep seeking the things that are above. Set your heart on things above. And here he says, this is what it looks like. It's, it's Christ ruling your heart to which you were indeed called in one body, and be thankful. Be thankful for Christ. He's so good. In verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So now you have the word, the Bible, particularly the gospel. Let, let the gospel dwell in your heart richly. Well, how does it come in your heart? How does it come in? We, we come on Sundays. We hear the word of God preached. We hear it read. We think about it. God applies that word to our lives. We, we regularly have the Bible where we can read it ourselves. We can open God's word and we can read it. That we can cause it to dwell in us richly. That is, that it's bearing fruit. We can spend time with other brothers reading the Bible. We can read it with our families. We can, we can read the Bible all the time. Put, making sure the Bible is in our hearts dwelling richly within us. So we intake, intake the Bible. Breathe it in. And then we breathe it out, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. So there's a plus and a subtraction sign here. The teaching is imparting spiritual truth. So you read the Bible, you have something to say to somebody. Listen to what I read in the Bible this morning. Let me tell you about this. It's about seeking things that are above. I shouldn't be seeking the things on earth, because my life is hidden with Christ and God. And you tell your, your friend, your wife, your kids, you tell them about that. I was driving the other morning, driving the kids to school. And I said, guys, i got to tell you something. My brain's been rocked by Psalm 23. Let me tell you something about this good shepherd. Mm -hmm. I told my daughter, I said, did you know 
that the Lord is our sh- is is a good shepherd. She's like, yes, but he's my shepherd. And it's just like that simple reality. She looked at me. She's like, yeah, he's our shepherd. And then I tell her, I said, you know, it's amazing. The, the end of the verse says that in him, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I said, what do you think that means? We started talking about it. You know, it doesn't, I don't think it means that life's going to be easy. Do you? No. I think it means that even when it's hard and comfort feels lacking, he's going to be gracious and he's going to use it for good. And we're just talking about it. My son in the backseat interacting with it and we're just spending that, that time. I think, I think that's the way in which the word is dwelling in you richly and coming out. So sometimes we don't say anything because we're not putting the word in our hearts ourselves. So pray and put the Bible in, breathe it in and take it out and then it says singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. It's, this could be in the church community singing together. could be individually in songs of praise. But anyway, the, your heart has been tuned to praise Him because the Word of Christ is dwelling in you richly. And then the summary in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to God the Father through Him. Notice the comprehensiveness. Whatever you do, he could just say, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. But he doesn't because he knows that we're guys and we're going to try to look for wiggle room. <laughs> whatever you do, and word or deed, what you say and what you do, you talk to people, what you do to people, do everything, every single thing that you do, every action of thought, or deed, or impulse, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And if you can't do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, don't do it. If your actions don't honor Him, then don't do it. Everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And let your actions, let your life be an ongoing sacrifice of thanksgiving to God through Christ. That's a heart tuned to praise Him. So if you want to do spiritual good to people. You want to lead people. You want to lead people in your home, in your relationships, in your church, in your community. Then you want to be the Colossians 3 man. The one who's calibrated by eternity. His compass is right. Who's regularly changing his clothes. Always putting sin to death and putting on life. And has his heart tuned to the glory of God in the face of Christ. So if you're going to lead others, you need to remember where you're going. You don't want to be like Lot, who just fits in in a place like Sodom. You, you, you want to be a guy that's a refreshing aroma of Christ, who's already has his clothes, as it were, with the scent of heaven upon him, who people want to come talk to because their life's falling apart. They know you're the Christian guy. You would think differently, feel differently, live differently. They're going to come to you for advice. They're going to come to you for questions. They're going to come to you when things fall apart. That that was the guy I went to when I was a non-Christian. Because I would mock him. I wanted to wipe that silly smirk off his face. All the joy he had infuriated me. But when stuff was falling apart, 
I went to him and said, tell me about your God. His life was both repelling and attractive to me. So brothers, be that guy. Be that guy who knows where he's going and lives his life with the scent of heaven upon him. In your church, in your family, in your communities. We could do the hard work of seeking and, and setting our minds on these things. But it's the good work, isn't it? Let's pray. Our Father, we want to thank you today. Thank you for this time that we could think about these things. I thank you for brothers taking time on a Saturday morning when he could be doing a million different things. Lord, I pray that as we endeavor to seek the things that are above and to set our minds on things that are above, that we would meet you in that process. And we'd be reminded of the gospel. And Lord, we'd be so overcome by grace that we would prioritize putting off sin and not just putting it off, but putting it to death, killing it. Lord, we savor Christ so much that we slay our sin. Lord, would you use us? Use us to make an impact. Even here, this next several hours, as we talk and spend time, would you use us to affect the spiritual good of one another, to be an encouragement to each other. And I pray for Maranatha Great Church. Uh, Lord, would you use this church to be a great encouragement to one another, particularly the men, as dads and husbands, church members. Lord, use them for your greater glory in this community and in this church. Men who know where they're going, Lord, would they live like it? Would Christ be glorified as they exude thankfulness for the gospel? In Jesus' name, amen. amen.